Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we're continuing our series in 1 Timothy called Living the Truth. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Holding to Genuine Faith. I started yesterday with the second half of 1 Timothy, and you know, I started by reading 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5, so I'll read it again. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So the beginning of this passage declares that demons will instruct false teachers in their doctrine. And in consequence, these false teachers will find positions of authority, and they'll teach others in the church to abandon their faith. And those of you who've been listening to me for some time now will know that I have at times spoken of the assurance that those of us who are in Christ have that we've received eternal life and that eternal life is eternal. That is nothing, according to Romans 8, 38 to 39, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so believers should not live in fear that they will be lost. Rather, we should rest in assurance that we're held safe in Christ. However, the Bible also teaches, as in Hebrews 10:26, that if we deliberately keep on sinning, no sacrifice for sins remains, but only a raging expectation of judgment that will consume the enemies of God. So how are we to understand that false teachers are able to deceive some, so that as Paul describes it here, they, they depart from the faith? And I think the answer to the conundrum is found as we examine two separate passages. You know, the first is 1 John 2.19. It says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That is to say, even though it seemed to us that these people were in the faith, yet something occurred so that it became evident that their conversion experience was never a genuine one. Another passage we might consider is that spoken by Jesus, recorded in Matthew 24, 24. Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So false prophets will deceive many and would deceive even the elect if that were possible. And that squares well with Jesus' teaching of the parable of the four soils, in which we're told of individuals who appear genuinely saved only to discover later on that there was something wrong with them from the beginning. So using this biblical data, coming from various places, it helps us understand what Paul's saying. The Holy Spirit has revealed to Paul that in later times, doctrines inspired by demons will capture the hearts of false teachers, and they will lead some in the church astray. Now, recognizing that this is an ever-present danger, and fighting hard to get those who are truly not saved to truly believe, so we recognize that we're in a fight for their souls. And that's the gist of Paul's instructions to Timothy. Timothy has been sent to the church in Ephesus to take on those false teachers and to stop them. 
And even though the fight in the church in Ephesus was a real fight, we also have to realize that this fight won't just happen in Ephesus. It's going to happen in many places and in many different time periods until Jesus returns. And now Paul returns to the idea of the false teachers. Notice from verse 1 that it's the demons who inspire the false doctrines. And then in verse 2, we notice that the demons inspire false teachers. And then watch how Paul describes the false teachers. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So let's concentrate on those three character traits of false teachers. Paul uses first the word insincerity. And the Greek word that Paul employs here speaks of people who give an impression of having certain purposes, all the while in reality they have a different motive entirely. The idea is that they're deliberate deceivers. They want to give the impression of piety, and all the while their purpose was never to serve Christ. They were always motivated by demons. Now, we might think about Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds. The enemy goes out to sow destruction into a healthy crop, and at first, the seeds of the enemy look just like good, healthy plants, but in time, they prove to be destructive weeds meant to destroy the harvest. So this parable of the wheat and the weeds found in Matthew 13 is shocking, especially to naive people. See, they don't know that the enemy has sent false teachers who deliberately deceive. The second word Paul uses is the word liars. These false teachers deliberately lie. And then finally, Paul says of them whose consciences are seared. We're supposed to get an image of a branding iron, having made a searing mark on the flesh, an imprint that renders the nerves damaged so that they no longer feel. In the same way, the nerves of the consciences of these false teachers no longer warn them that what they're doing is evil. And so, having described the nature of the false teachers, Paul then gives the nature of their message, and that's what we find in verse 3. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, at the outset, please notice that Paul is here speaking now not just of the future in which all manner of false teachers will arise, but he's speaking about a certain teaching that's going to occur and then reoccur also in the future. See, sometimes Bible teachers refer to this as asceticism. It's the practice of denying ourselves of something in order to gain holiness. And what's to be denied here are two things. First of all, we notice they forbid marriage. And we do know that in history, there have been all manner of religious practices that have forbidden marriage and therefore forbidden all sexual activity. We know there was a subgroup among the Essenes, a Jewish religious group at the time of Jesus that refused marriage. We also know that the time came when some Gnostics during the early centuries of the Christian church also forbade marriage. We also know that the Roman church has forbidden marriage to its priests, even though the Bible is clear that elders, pastors, leaders of the church are to be the husband of one wife. That is to say, the rule that forbids marriage, well, that's a direct violation of the scripture. Now, of course, the Bible does make provision for those who do not marry. Jesus wasn't married. Paul, in the end, was not married. Paul even commends singleness among some who, for the sake of the kingdom, in order to devote themselves fully to the ministry, will remain single. 
But he's also very clear that the one who marries and the one who does not marry, he says, both of them do well if they live to the glory of God. See, Paul simply denies that refraining from marriage puts one in a higher spiritual plane because it doesn't. Next, Paul speaks of those false teachers who teach that it's important to abstain from certain foods. Now, this was important in Paul's day. Go to Colossians 2, 20 to 23, and here I read, Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, it's the last line that helps us to understand the true issue at stake here. Clearly, there are those who thought that asceticism, denying your body of things essential, Paul says treating your body with severity, those things will stop the indulgences of the flesh. So let's stop here because there's something important to learn. Someone might say, well then, doesn't the Bible teach and even encourage the practice of fasting? So what's fasting? But to deny oneself of the indulgences of the flesh, isn't that severity? Isn't that asceticism? So let's answer that by dealing with the matter of fasting. Why does the Bible encourage fasting so much so that Jesus said, and when you fast? See, Jesus is assuming that there will be times when his followers will fast. We might also remember that just prior to the start of the, of the church's worldwide missionary enterprise, Acts 13 verse 1 says that while they were fasting and praying, then the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. So fasting has been a part of Christian history. John Piper said, fasting is a way of saying that we're not going to be enslaved by food as the source of our satisfaction. We will use the renunciation of food from time to time to express that Jesus is better than food. Jesus is more needful than food. Now, if that's right, then it might also be that severity to the body is of some value. And here I think we come to the heart of the matter. Sometimes false teachers take a part of the truth, take a half-truth, and lead God's people into a complete error. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Newfeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, Consider offering a financial gift to support Bible teaching you can trust and important Bible teaching resources like Heaven and Hell. When Paul speaks of those false teachers who forbid both marriage and certain foods, well, he's most likely referring to a teaching that would come into fruition 
some years later. The second century saw a cult called Gnosticism. According to this religion or this philosophy, a good God could not have created the material world. In their minds, the material world was the seat of all evil. And it's for that reason that the Gnostics argued that the flesh, the body, well, it had to be not only denied, but abused, and this would lead to a higher realm of spirituality. I think William Barclay has given a good description of this line of thinking, and so I'm going to quote him in its entirety. He said, This was the ever-reoccurring heresy in the church. In every generation, men arose who tried to be stricter than God. When the apostolic canons came to be written, it was necessary to set it down in black and white. If any overseer, priest, or deacon, or anyone on the priestly list abstains from marriage and flesh and wine, not on the ground of asceticism, that is, for the sake of discipline, but through abhorrence of them as evil in themselves, forgetting that all things are very good, that God made male and female, but blaspheming and slandering the workmanship of God, then let that person be cast out of the church. Irenaeus, an early Christian godly leader, writing towards the end of the second century, tells how certain followers of Saturnus declare that marriage and generation are from Satan. Many likewise abstain from animal food and draw away multitudes by a feigned temperance of this kind. So this kind of thing came to a head in the monks and hermits of the fourth century. They went away and lived in the Egyptian desert, entirely cut off from men. They spent their lives mortifying the flesh. One never ate cooked food and was famous for his fleshlessness. Another stood all night so that it was impossible for him to sleep. Another was famous because he allowed his body to become so dirty and neglected that vermin dropped from him as he walked. Another deliberately ate salt in midsummer and then abstained from drinking water. A clean body, they said, necessarily means an unclean soul. That's the end quote from Barclay. See, Barclay was referring to a long period in Christian history where those who lived in absolute squalor or in caves or in a state of constant abuse of their body were considered by many to be the holiest people among us. See, the idea is that something abnormal needed to be done to obtain to a higher level of spirituality. I could myself cite a number of very prominent examples of that in history. There was a man named Origen, highly influential Christian teacher. He argued that the only people who would be able to understand the Bible were people who practiced poverty, abstinence from sex even when married, and constant watchfulness even abstaining from sleeping. Now, this was the nasty side of the monastic movement which overwhelmed the church for centuries and in some places still does. And if you're wondering about this idea that people never slept, well, as you know, that's impossible. But these monks managed to prop themselves up, never lie down, and pretended then that they never slept, always watchful, never knowing when the day of the Lord might come. Now, it's easy to see this kind of extremism as simply that. It's just extremism. I mean, after all, the vast majority of people never participate in that kind of thing. But there was a time in ages past when all sorts of so-called Christian people believed themselves to be spiritually inferior. They weren't actually saints of God because they didn't participate in that kind of asceticism. Now, I've already mentioned the book of Colossians, 
Paul was saying that kind of asceticism is of no value in learning to say no to sinful impulses. It was deceit to believe that kind of living was the pathway to holiness. And why? Well, let's get back to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let's look again at the first part of verse 4. For everything created by God is good. So let's stop there because when you think about it, this is revolutionary in your walk with God. Everything God created is good. Well, we know that from Scripture. I mean, first of all, you might think of Genesis 1. On each successive day of creation, God looks at all that he's made and he proclaims it to be what? Good. Not substandard. Not second best. The created world is an expression of the Father's handiwork. That's why Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, someone might object. We might say, but wasn't the created order subject to the fall? so that it became ruined by sin. Ha, again, a half-truth leads to complete error. Yeah, the world was subjected to the fall so that now in this world we have things like disease and drought and hurricanes and earthquakes. It's true, the creation is groaning, but the creation has not been turned into an evil thing. So you might think of Jesus' own lessons from nature. He said, look at the birds of the air. Observe how the Father feeds them. Look at the flowers of the field. Observe their splendor, a splendor so great that even Solomon in all his finery could not be clothed as they are. And we know that. All around is the wonder of creation, its beauty, its provision, the plants that grow, the weather systems that sustain, the environment that causes all things to flourish. And we human beings are a part of the creation and God has called our physical creation very good. And so human beings are called upon to delight in the very thing that God delights in, the creation. Enjoy it, subdue it, make it serve us and bring betterment to our lives. And that's what the false teachers denied. They denied that God is good to all through the creation he has made. Everything created by God is good. And then Paul adds to that truth. Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's the second half of this powerful truth. Not only did God make all things, and not only is he not the author of evil, but nothing is to be rejected. Now, some of us might find this almost impossible to believe. I mean, let's start with, you know, often heard objections. Well, how about those foods that aren't good for you? Shouldn't we avoid those? Aren't they to be rejected? And then, how about tobacco, marijuana, harmful use of drugs that produce hallucinogens? You know, to this, I would respond by insisting that we take in mind Paul's last words here. Everything is good if it is received with thanksgiving. Well, thanksgiving to whom? Thanksgiving to God. So stop for a moment and consider the Christian practice that before we eat, we bow our heads and we offer to God our gratefulness for his bounty in which he provides us with the food that we're consuming. It is inappropriate for a Christian to begin to eat without giving thanks. Think about that. You know, some of the dangerous drugs that people take can, in the hands of a proper medical expert, be used to either heal illness or to ease pain. So whenever we abuse the good creation, well, we also put it in the place where we can't, with a good conscience, bow our heads and give thanks to God. See, that's why verse 5 is so important. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So sum up. See, all false teaching is the result of twisting the word of God 
taking a text out of Scripture context, or denying its plain meaning. So whether the false teacher leads us to asceticism or to unbridled sensuality, it's always done by subverting the text that is before us. Consider, for example, the matter of sex. The ascetic teacher points out all the ruin that comes to human beings through sex, whether it's sexually transmitted diseases, rape, destruction of relationships, or abuse, sex is the cause. But God created sex. And so false teachers on the other side, those who argue for sensuality, they would allow for people to engage in sex because didn't God create sex? And so for them, everything goes. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, homosexual sex, the list just goes on and on. But everything God made is holy but it is only made holy by the instructions that come from the Word of God and by prayer. And so when sex functions in a way that God designed it to function, it's neither permissive nor is it ascetic. It is in the confines of lifelong marriage between one man and one woman that God has given us safeguards for the enjoyment of the gift that he gave us. Mandatory celibacy, that's a doctrine of demons unbridled sensuality, that also is a doctrine of demons. So I hope you can see that when we no longer see life from the perspective of the Word of God and by holiness and by prayer, when we view life apart from the intention of our Creator, that's where we fall into error and eventually we fall from the faith. For this reason, We must hold to the genuine faith, once and for all, delivered to the saints. John, thanks so much for your message. Let me ask you, does this passage in any way somehow speak to the issues of sensuality in our day? Yeah, because, um, you know, it tends to be that we go in terms of a pendulum. Um, On the one hand, you have people moving towards this extreme, rigid, a body-denying asceticism, which is, if there is some of it today, it's certainly not prominent. But we also know that in our day, we've gone exactly in the opposite direction so that we can't imagine at any point in time that we would say no to our flesh and deny ourselves. So this too is a great error, and it leads people away from God, and it is also a doctrine of demons. So let us be aware of both sides of that issue. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in 1 Timothy, living the truth right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425. 
or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.